On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Bradshaw about Eastern Orthodoxy. This is part of our new series that we're doing on different faith traditions, learning directly from those within them. We hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity within each of these interviews that leads us to a better understanding. So we're going to cover topics like just what is Eastern Orthodoxy? How do you define it? How is it different from other segments in Christianity? And how is it the same and connected to the great tradition? What makes Eastern Orthodoxy so wonderful uh, to Dr. Bradshaw? And what areas of Eastern Orthodoxy might be most susceptible to critique or the ones that get the most questions about? And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just think seriously as in like aggressively. We want to think with particular virtues in mind. So we've endeavored to promote and hopefully embody a culture, an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And in that vein, we have started doing a series on different denominations or aspects of the Christian tradition uh, and hearing from people who are within those traditions themselves. So oftentimes, especially if you're in the Baptist world, uh, when you're trying to understand different traditions, you've probably grown up, you, you might have grown up a Baptist your whole life or not had contact with a lot of other various segments of the tradition, and you just either A, don't understand what they're trying to say or why they think the way they think. So what we're trying to do is understand directly from them, what is it that you think? What's unique? What's the same? What do you find beautiful? What do you find great and good? And maybe what do you find as the the areas of possible weakness uh, that you, you possibly struggle with? So I think this is going to be fun. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Eastern Orthodoxy with Dr. David Bradshaw. And I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about this, because uh, I have benefited from Dr. Bradshaw's own scholarship and from a lot of the work he's done there. And I think as I've read your scholarship and as I've talked with you, you, you model a humble posture that I find very attractive and, and something that is just, I think, part of what you should be as a Christian. So I, I love that, and I'm excited to talk to, to, to him about it. So before we get into all of what Eastern Orthodoxy is, Dr. Bradshaw, maybe for those of our listeners who don't know who you are, give us a little bit of context. What is it that you do? And then when and how did you become Eastern Orthodox? Was that something you grew up in, or did you transition at a later point in your life? Yeah, well, thank you, and, and thanks for the invitation to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, I am a convert. Um, I converted back in 1982. I was a student at Auburn University, and I've been raised a, a Christian, but um, more or less nominally so. I wasn't all that active, but uh, I had a professor who himself had converted to Orthodoxy, and he introduced me to it. And it took a little while. The church uh, that was in that area was actually the closest one was in Montgomery, and it was a Greek Orthodox church, and uh, they were still celebrating the liturgy partly in Greek. And um, it had very much of a Greek feel to it and so on. So it took a little while to sort of acclimate and also to study some of the history. And it was really the history more than anything else that kind of won me over. And I, I can talk more about that as we go along. Um, but just to complete the story, um, like I said, that was 1982. And 
I uh, went to Notre Dame for a year. I, I did history and philosophy of science at Notre Dame. I actually have a bachelor's in physics. So I worked in physics for some years as well. And then in uh, 91, I went back into philosophy, got a PhD at the University of Texas. And uh, I've been here at the University of Kentucky since 97, uh, teaching primarily ancient philosophy, also philosophy of religion, um, poli- uh, medieval philosophy, some political philosophy. My real interest really is uh, uh, history of philosophy as it relates to sort of intersects with um, theology and uh, especially Christian theology, but also Jewish and Islamic. Um, so anyway, obviously you can guess that's got me into the church fathers a good bit as well. And so a lot of what I've written has been about them. And obviously that's kind of congruent with being Orthodox too. So, Well, Dr. Bradshaw, thank you again for giving us some time today. I'm, I'm particularly interested uh, in this conversation out of all the ones that I think we're going to have in this series on different denominations and traditions, because I think this is the one that, that I myself am, am least familiar with. And I think most of our listeners are going to be least familiar with. So I think I probably only read maybe one book uh, by an Eastern Orthodox theologian. So um, most of my reading and I think the listeners reading has been done in the Western tradition. So maybe uh, for those who, who have, you know, just, just no knowledge whatsoever, I'm thinking here of my grandma. Um, she, she would not know anything about Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, just a, a two to three minute, like this, this is the essence of the Eastern Orthodox church. Um, what would you say are the, are the core tenets of, of Eastern Orthodoxy? Yeah. So Orthodoxy is probably different from many, uh, other churches in that it wasn't really formed to have a distinct theological perspective. It wasn't formed as a result of a split with anyone or a controversy. Um, it just, uh, you know, it's sort of the church that existed in the eastern half of the Mediterranean world, Greece, Asia Minor, the Holy Land, Crete and Cyprus and so on, um, as that church has survived up till the present. Uh, You know, what happened in the uh, fifth century, of course, the Roman Empire in the west fell to German invasion, uh, but in the east it didn't. And it was largely a kind of a linguistic line there that the the half that fell was the half in which Latin was the primary language. The half that survived, Greek was the primary language. Uh, It became what today we call the Byzantine Empire, but they never called themselves that. They always just called themselves Romans. And it was in full continuity with the ancient church, you know, because like I said, the empire didn't fall. You didn't have then a period of, you know, sort of dark ages when learning was lost, when only the clergy still knew how to read. Um, They always had very literate and educated laymen. And uh, furthermore, you know, their native language was Greek. So they were reading the New Testament in the original. And they had also the writings of the early church fathers that were primarily in Greek. And so there was, I think, just a lot more continuity in the whole history of the church and its theological development there was in the West. And uh, of course, as you know, from later history, you know, the West, then the medieval church developed a lot of practices such as uh, the belief in purgatory and uh, the selling of indulgences and even some forms of the veneration of the Virgin Mary and the saints and so on um, that, the, that the Reformation reacted against. Well, many of those, the Orthodox also uh, had just never had because they really developed um, because of the way power had been centralized into Rome. 
And that's really what caused the split between the East and the West. It was in the Middle Ages when uh, the Eastern patriarchs, and by that I mean the, the Bishop of Constantinople, and also Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, those were sort of the great patriarchates of the Eastern Church. When they became aware of how the Bishop of Rome was claiming to have universal jurisdiction over the whole church. And that was something that in the ancient church had never been recognized or really even considered, frankly. I mean, it wasn't even an issue of debate. People always understood that the church should be governed in a conciliar way uh, uh, among the bishops collectively gathering together in council, much as the apostles gathered uh, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Uh, that really was the model for church government, you know, that the ancient church adopted and then built upon. And you had a whole series of councils, you know, what they call the ecumenical councils. Um, anyway, that that remained the model in the East, uh, whereas the West had this sort of sweep toward centralizing power in Rome. And so it was in 1054 that all this came to a head. And, uh, you know, famous episode where the the uh, the Pope of Rome excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople, and then the Patriarch, you know, returned the favor, excommunicated the Pope. And from that point, there was at least a sort of a formal schism, although there were still many, several attempts later to kind of patch things up uh, when those were not successful. So anyway, what we call Eastern Orthodoxy um, is simply that church as it survives to the present. And today it includes, you know, not only the, the Eastern Mediterranean area, but also there was evangelism into um, Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, uh, Russia. And from there, even further evangelism, like, you know, there there's an Orthodox church in Japan. There's one in Finland. And of course, here in America, there are many Orthodox now. So um, uh, it all, you know, it's developed organically, you could say. Uh, and like I said, it was never a reaction to anything. It was simply the continuous development of Christianity from its its beginning point. Yeah, so I think you've kind of sketched a little bit about how the Eastern Orthodox tradition is connected to the greater tradition of the church just by this origin story. And I'm curious, how much do you think the schism was related to just, you know, different socio-cultural factors, different languages, um, those sorts of things playing into creating a divide there. Um, uh, I guess I know you mentioned the, the Pope's kind of centralizing of power, Rome centralizing of power being a, a big issue. Is is that the, the main issue? And there's some other things that kind of contribute to it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's the main point of division, but I, I think you're right to mention language that um, if there hadn't been the linguistic division, people would have communicated much better, you know, when all these differences were beginning to arise in the, really you can trace it back even to the fourth and fifth century. Um, and they would have discussed, you know, they would have debated openly uh, whether the development of the papacy that was coming, to, that was developing in Rome really was acceptable. Um, now, I don't want to sound like we're you know, that we're totally anti-papist in a sense. I mean, the, the whole church always recognized the Bishop of Rome as sort of uh, the first among equals. And the, um, let's see, it was the fourth ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, um, 
kind of codified the way the early church had developed up to that point in identifying uh, the five great patriarchates. Uh, they call this the pentarchy, you know, the five uh, ar- pen, uh, patriarchs. Uh, in order of precedence were Rome, then Constantinople, then Alexandria, then Antioch, and then Jerusalem. And um, that remains the, the fundamental understanding of orthodoxy to this day. You know, so we have never um, sort of, you know, written Rome and the Western Church off the books and just declared they're not Christian or anything. Of course they are. Um, they're separated brethren. And um, there's no reason in principle that these differences couldn't be reconciled. But it really would take, I think, um, frankly, some compromise that hasn't been forthcoming. And and the key issue, again, it's not the primacy of Rome. Uh, we recognize that. It's the universal jurisdiction. It's whether Rome has a kind of an immediate jurisdiction over the whole church. Um, and then, of course, later things were added to that, such as papal infallibility. Um, but universal jurisdiction, I think, is the key point. And uh, I would hold, and I, th- you know, all Orthodox, I think, would pretty well hold this, that it was just never viewed that way in the ancient church. Um, there was a right of appeal. You know, that was recognized at one of the councils in the fourth century that if a bishop felt he had been deposed uh, illegitimately, unjustly, he could appeal to Rome. And then if, if the Pope ruled in his favor, uh, the Pope could direct then there to be a sort of a retrial among the bishops in that vicinity. Um you know, that existed and that's fine, but uh, that's a far cry from universal jurisdiction. So what are some some doctrinal um, positions that, that make the, the Eastern tradition um, unique when you compare it to the Western tradition? And maybe here I'm thinking about something like how um, how the Eastern Orthodox understand what happened in the fall. Of course, there's differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants on, on what exactly happened in the fall as well, but or um or how sin is understood or maybe it's not even uh you know it's so much of a difference in doctrine but a, a difference in um uh, in what's emphasized or it could be something like theosis maybe this would be a good time to to talk about that because I think that's a doctrine that a lot of people in the West either don't know anything about or either just totally misunderstand if they have heard of it but what are those unique doctrinal stances for the East um, that we should know about yeah um well first let me just be careful um as to what we call doctrine, just because, um, you know, what, what orthodoxy sort of formally affirms are the teachings of the ecumenical councils. Um, and that includes the Nicene Creed, which we recite every Sunday. There's nothing, you know, in the liturgy per se about, say, theosis or even about the fall and so on. Um, so there is freedom uh, for individuals, you know, to sort of mull things over and come to their own conclusions. It, it, it may be a little different when you start teaching publicly as a theologian or what have you, but um, there's not a lot of attempt to, you might say, sort of police what believe other than those basic truths that are taught by the universal church. Um, so far as, uh, you know, the things you mentioned, they are important and they come up a lot in, in the teaching of the church fathers. And so in a broader sense, our tradition, our, our sort of authoritative source of doctrine, uh, uh, in addition to scripture, of course, is also the teachings of the church fathers, and especially those of the Eastern church, you know, who wrote in Greek, the ones called the Greek fathers. 
Um, so, you know, about the things you mentioned, I would say about the fall, there is a pretty significant difference between the teachings of the Greek fathers and that of the Western Latin tradition, which really goes back to Augustine. Um, about the effects of the fall, you know, that Augustine will talk about humanity being a, a massa damnata, a damned mass now, and um, God chooses some to save out of that mass um, th by giving them uh, the grace uh, of perseverance to hear his call and to obey his will. And he chooses on grounds that are inscrutable to us uh, to give this grace to some and not to others. Um, you know, this is something that he, he, he teaches very clearly in the Pelagian controversy, but if you look at Augustine, even prior to the Pelagian controversy already, he wrote a work called To Simplician, um, I think around 399, roughly, when he had already worked this out, this interpretation based primarily on Paul in Romans 9. Um, uh, the Greek fathers never... Took, never believed that and never read Paul that way. Um, the way they see it is that salvation is a synergistic process. I mean, the synergy being the cooperation of God and man. And um, the way they kind of the framework that they were thinking in terms of the big picture, uh, God is the good. All right. They took that idea that you can find in Plato and the Greek philosophers of the good as the first principle of all reality, the source of all reality. And they understood God in those terms. And therefore, um, what God does is always, in every case, seek to lead us to good. Um, he's not selective. He doesn't favor some over others. Um, he seeks to lead everyone to the good. But at the same time, we have free will. And some people respond and others don't. Or you might say everyone responds all the time, of course, in different ways and uh, sort of cumulatively through the course of a life, that response you give amounts to your saying yes or no to God. Um, but at no point does God wash his hands and give up and walk away. You know, he's always there in your life as the good seeking to lead you into the good. So it's a synergistic process. God is leading, God is calling, and we're responding. Um, so the whole idea of um, the way that Augustine thought about election and predestination really didn't come into play in the East. And it's not even that they read him and, and rejected. They didn't even read what he had written, you know, because he was writing in Latin. And that's one of those places where the linguistic division uh, was very unfortunate because it prevented there being a lot of discussion and mutual interchange on that issue. Um, I think you also mentioned uh, theosis, right? And yeah, so that's important too. Theosis, a uh, Greek word that literally means becoming God uh, or becoming theos. Now, the thing to realize is the word theos, if you read um, the, the Septuagint, the Old Testament, transla the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, that was used by the ancient church and is still used in orthodoxy. Um, theos is a pretty broadly used term. It doesn't only apply to uh, God, Yahweh. Um, uh, you know, for instance, in Exodus, God himself says to Moses, I will make you a God unto Pharaoh. All right. And the word there is theos. Um, and in the Psalms, you know, God 
speaks among the gods in, in Psalm 82, and, and the Lord himself quotes that in John chapter 10 and says, you know, um, I have said ye are gods, right? And he kind of challenges the Pharisees. What do you think he meant by that? Um, well, so um, the ideal of becoming God in this sort of derivative way, um, that's what Theos is, is referring to. And uh, it's an, in another way to put that would be the phrase that uh, St. Peter uses in the beginning of Second Peter, to become partakers of the divine nature. All right, and that doesn't mean that, you know, a human being could ever become co-equal with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, definitely not. But it means participating in God's own life and his energy. That's the term that the Greek fathers use the most. Um, energia in Greek is our word energy. Uh, participating in the energy of God that he gives to be shared with us. And the thing that's a little different about that or that you don't find as much in Western theology, um, it's not just a matter of obeying God and loving God. I mean, all that's part of it, definitely. But it's a real ontological transformation. And it's, like I said, a relationship of participation, which is another idea that, that's coming out of Greek philosophy and Plato and so forth, that uh, a subordinate reality can participate in a higher reality and thereby become in a sort of derivative way what that higher reality already is. See that, for instance, in Plato, that's the relationship between sensible things and the forms. You know, any, anything that's beautiful participates in beauty itself, right? And, and to that extent, the, the lower thing becomes beautiful through that participation. Well, it's the same thing here that by participating in the life of God that he gives to us, uh, through prayer, through worship, through the sacraments, through obedience to his commandments. Um, all of that constitutes what they think of as synergy, you know, cooperation with God that enables us to participate in the life of God and to the extent that we do become deified. And, you know, that, that sounds like really grandiose, but um, why not? I mean, Christ himself refers to this when he quotes that verse and says, I have said ye are gods. Um, so it's something that we're called to, and it doesn't just begin after you die. It begins here and now, because here and now is when you're doing those things. And it, of course, continues, right? So uh, another thing that's kind of distinctive in orthodoxy compared to, say, Augustine or Aquinas is the belief in what's called perpetual progress, that after death, uh, the blessed are continuing, continuing to progress further and further and deeper and deeper into uh, the knowledge of God and the love of God. And there's, there's literally no end because God is infinite. Um, and that actually, I found, you know, that a lot of people, Western Christians are familiar with that because they read C.S. Lewis and The Last Battle. And if you remember The Last Battle, that's how it ends. You know, the, those from Narnia find all of reality sort of unfolding in these higher and higher uh, levels and layer upon layer, and there's no end to the joy and sort of the ascent upward deeper into the knowledge of God. And so that's how the, the church fathers, or at least the Greek fathers, sort of envision the afterlife. And that's how, what, so theosis also is a process. It's not a state that's ever complete and achieved. It's always something that's ongoing. Um, all right. So anyway, those are some of the main points. You know, there are probably others, but yeah, so I'm curious on theosis. 
is this, you know, I mean, are there certain attributes that we are being transformed into and others that we aren't? So say like necessary existence, I would think most would want to say that that's a property that God has in some sense. Is that something that we are able to, to obtain or where's the, I guess the, the line that says, well, this is a distinction between me and God that I, even in theosis, I can't get those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good question. Um, so the way the church fathers would put this is that um, there's the essence of God. That's the Greek word, usia, And then there are the energies of God and the energei. And what we can share uh, and sort of know firsthand through our personal experience are the energies, but not the essence. Uh, St. Basil, in one of his epistles, says that uh, the energies of God come down to us, but his essence remains beyond our reach. Um, So the essence, you know, would include sort of the um, uh, attribute of immutability and infinity and uh, necessary being, those things that are that are intrinsic to God and make him who he is in some sense. Uh, but part of its remaining beyond our reach is also that we don't fully, uh, we don't comprehend it. We can't define it. We can't, we can sort of list some of the qualities that are, we know are present to God that are intrinsic to God, but that, that doesn't amount to defining the divine essence. Um, the things that we share in the energies, they tended to identify those with goodness, justice, wisdom, providence, um, the gifts of the Spirit, our energies. And that's interesting, by the way, if you read the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, when St. Paul describes the gifts of the Spirit, that's the word he uses. He calls them energemata, and he uses the verbal form, uh, energain, uh, for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is energizing and realizing these gifts within us. And that's part of where the whole idea came from for the Greek fathers. Um, anyway, so um, gifts like uh, prophecy and healing and faith and love, um, those two are divine energies. And they are, those two are part of what God is, right? They're, it's not like sort of, you know, these are creatures and they're, no, these are uncreated. Um, God always has had love. He's always had goodness. Um, but um, he offers those to us to invite us, you might say, to, to share the banquet. Um, so that's how they think of it. Uh, we always remain creatures, of course, and we, re- we become God by participation, but not, not by essence. All right. Yeah, I think that's a helpful explanation. And I think after people hear that, it, it, it makes it a lot easier to understand and uh, for, for, for Western Christians who maybe have questions about it. So um, are there any areas of Eastern Orthodoxy that you think are most susceptible to critique? Maybe this is something that, uh, you know, you haven't quite been able to square with your own reading of Scripture or um, just a common teaching or something that, that, that you think is... Um, that you're always getting questions about from from outsiders. Um, are there any things that you that you have trouble maybe just personally um, holding that that are common commonly held beliefs uh, in the Eastern Church? Well, for me, um, it's there are no beliefs really, but there is a, a matter of practice, you might say, that um, I think is kind of glaring when you do look at Orthodoxy uh, realistically as it exists today that it's a little bit fragmented. Um, 
Now y'all are Baptists, right? So <laughs> this won't shock you too much. We, we, yeah, we can do that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fragmentation, uh, it does happen, right? But um, in Orthodoxy, it tends to be uh, somewhat on ethnic national lines. You have the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox, uh, Romanian Orthodox, Serbian, Bulgarian, Antiochian. Um, and unfortunately, in Orthodoxy today, there's a pretty strong tension between um the Russian church from, you know, Moscow, the patriarch of Moscow being the head of that church, and then the Greek church and especially the patriarch of Constantinople um, are often uh, at odds with each other, uh, not doctrinally and not even over liturgical matters. I mean, the Orthodox liturgy is the same everywhere and, and Orthodox beliefs are the same, but politically, uh, so you might say turf wars um, and uh, to a lesser extent, this kind of folds over into geopolitics. I mean, this gets really complicated because the Russian church is, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, it kind of reentered that historic relationship of cooperation with the state that had existed back into the czars, you know, forever and ever. And so uh, Putin himself, Vladimir Putin, is orthodox and he uh, is on close terms with the patriarch. And a lot of people think that's a nefarious influence, you know, that um, on the other hand, you can look at the patriarch of Constantinople. His political situation is just terrible because he's he's essentially a captive of, of the Turkish government. And, you know, the Turks over the years have uh, expelled most of the Orthodox from Turkey. There are now just a few thousand left in Istanbul. Um, so it's a, he's also in a very... Um, compromised situation. So anyway, the thing that troubles me personally is just when I hear these patriarchs at odds with each other, and it does filter down to us, say, in America, because um, there are Russian churches here, there are also Greek churches, and there are minor differences that you can kind of trace back to the way these two different patriarchs are approaching a lot of issues. Um but the good news is none of that's really doctrinal, you know, none of it even kind of, you might say, rises to the level of theology. It really doesn't. It's it's politics and ecclesiology, uh, which are significant, but uh, it's not something that would ever, uh, I think, for an orth, you know, should ever lead you to, to question your faith or anything like that. As far as what what church life looks like as as an Orthodox, you know, obviously the, the, the liturgy is going to look very different. Uh, in an Eastern church than it does in, in my Baptist church, you know. So uh, just to set that aside, the rest of, of what it means to live as the church, the uh, the social work that a, that a church does for, for the poor and the those who are, uh, are underprivileged, like what does that look like? Maybe just in, I don't know if you call them parishes or um, forgive me if that's the incorrect, mm-hmm. yeah. but uh, mm-hmm. what, what does that look like in a, in a, in a local parish um, or maybe your local parish? Yeah, well, um, it can vary a lot, one parish to another, depending on the size and the resources. Um, so my parish is sort of medium-sized, and we have a, uh, a bread ministry. We give away bread you know, that we get from Panera. So, uh, But we give it away to people who come for that bread after liturgy every Sunday. Uh, we've also, uh, quite a few of us have been active in jail ministry and then uh, the late, there's a, there's a women's fellowship, and they help with the resettlement of refugees from overseas. Sometimes when they are brought to Lexington, um, 
I would say we're different. You know, we're not sort of on the scale of, say, the Catholic Church, where you have the Catholic Charities that is a, a, a large national organization and does, you know, really wonderful things on a large scale. There's there's just not enough size and, and sort of gravity or center of gravity enough in any local parish usually to, to do that. Um, but the beliefs are totally, you know, about caring for the poor. Um, you know, we, we read Matthew 25 just like everyone else, and uh, uh, we take it seriously uh, and try to obey. Um, you know, so far as other aspects of spiritual life, um, there are some things that are different. Um, in some ways, you know, you might, if you look back to the Catholic Church before Vatican II, and just the fact that there were regular periods of fasting, um, even regular days during the week, uh, when you couldn't eat meat, that sort of thing, uh, you know, a lot of attention to, to Lent, um, that's all true in Orthodoxy still. Uh, in fact, for us, the fasting days of the week are Wednesday and Friday. Uh, there are two days that we can't eat, and, and it's not only not, not meat, but also uh, dairy. Um, and, you know, that goes back to the ancient church. That's actually in the Didache, uh, like late first century, you know, that you're not to, uh, that you're to fast on Wednesday and Friday. So that's a very ancient practice. Um, and then uh, there are actually four fasting periods during the year, Great Lent, uh, prior to Easter, but there's also Advent, you know, before Christmas. And then there's what's called the Apostles Fast in June and uh, the Dormition Fast, which is for the Virgin Mary. Uh, that's in August. Uh, and we do uh, revere the Virgin Mary. We call her the Theotokos, you know, which means literally mother of God or the one who gave birth to God. Uh, and that's the term that was uh, uh, applied to her in the Third Ecumenical Council Okay, in 431, not to be as about her as much as it is about Christ, because it was a way of reaffirming the full divinity of Christ. Um, but it did, you could say, in a sense, it sort of bleeds over, because if you think of her in that way as the one who gave birth to God in the flesh, um, you know, that does affect the way you think about her simply in that she has been sanctified, she's been made holy, her womb carried God in the flesh. And that's that's an important aspect of Orthodox uh, iconography. A lot of times if you enter an Orthodox church, you know, there are icons all around the walls and also on the uh, apse that's above the altar. Um, and often in that apse, there's uh, an icon that has the, uh, the Virgin Mary seated and she's holding Christ in her lap. And he's a child, but he's not a baby. I mean, he's never depicted as sort of a baby face. He always has sort of a uh, an adult face in a sense. I mean, it's sort of a sense that this is truly God in the flesh. That's what the the icon is trying to to portray. And that icon is called Platatera, which in Greek means wider. She's wider than the heavens. There's there's a hymn that we sing that refers to her that way. Um, her womb was made more spacious than the heavens because the heavens themselves cannot contain God, and yet she contained God in the flesh. So that's how we think of her. Um, now, there are things that developed in the Western church, you know, like I mentioned, the Middle Ages uh, became part of Roman Catholic practice that were never part of orthodoxy. Uh, I mean, for instance, one thing in orthodoxy, whenever she's depicted in an icon, she's always with Christ. Uh, we never depict her alone. 
because we really don't want her to become an object of reverence, you know, alone. Uh, she's an object of reverence because she's the mother of Christ, mother of God. And therefore, um, you know, we always try to kind of keep that in, integral to our liturgy, our prayers, our icons. Um, and uh, maybe just one more thing just to mention in this vein, you know, so far as prayers go, um, typically if at home you'll have a prayer rule. You know, in other words, um, there will be set morning prayers and evening prayers that are very traditional, uh, incorporating some of the Psalms, for instance, that um, are usually read by Orthodox. So that doesn't mean you don't add your own prayers. You do. But um, the idea is that uh, you're always to sort of be to be praying in unison with the church. Um, and so that's the reason for having a prayer rule where in a way you're sort of learning to address God the way the church addresses God, you know, the way the saints have addressed God. And so uh, Orthodox prayers tend to be, often they'll strike outsiders or non-Orthodox as very stately and and uh, using very high language. Um, and that's deliberate, you know, because that's how we think God should be addressed. Um, and, and to the extent that we can, you know, and, and we can't always, sometimes their prayers just, just kind of well up, right? And you just say what's in your heart. But um, uh, if you listen to Orthodox prayers, by and large, they tend to be like that, you know, and the liturgy also, you know, it's very traditional. It's very ancient. Um, there's not much there that anyone, you could even say who wrote it, you know, because it's so, most of it's so ancient. It just goes back to the ancient church. Um, anyway, that's kind of rambling, but I hope that is what you were asking about. Yeah. So one question I'm curious, uh, justification is a big deal for Protestants and Catholics. You know, Protestants have a particular view of justification. Roman Catholics have theirs. Where does Eastern Orthodoxy fit into that conversation? Is is it something that's not a matter of, you know, doctrinal, you know, we have one view, you could, or like you've mentioned, how you could have some flexibility on what you believe. What, what does that look like for Eastern Orthodoxy? Yeah, you know, it's the word justification uh, is not one that comes up very much in Orthodox theology, uh, much less so than theosis that we were talking about a while ago, or of course salvation, right? That's another uh, key term. But I think in, in a lot of Western theology, there's sort of a tendency to um, divide things into stages, you know, that first you're saved and then you're sanctified and justified and so forth. And in Orthodoxy, it's not like that. Um, Salvation itself is an ongoing process. Uh, there's a saying you hear sometimes, um, like Callistos Ware, he wrote a great book called The Orthodox Church that I would recommend. Um, he, he, he puts it this way that uh, we have been saved uh, by Christ at the cross. Uh, we are being saved, each of us individually, through our whole life, through our that synergistic relationship we have to God. And we will be saved at the final judgment. And no one of those supersedes the others. Um, you can't focus on any one of them and to the exclusion of the others. They're all important. Uh, and so salvation, it sort of encompasses justification, I think. It, it encompasses uh, that process of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Um, I, you know, I mentioned a while ago the gifts of the Spirit, obviously, are a big part of that. But it's not really something isolated from other aspects. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's because 
one of the things that I, I think I hope comes out of this little series that we're doing, don't get me wrong, there are doctrines that are, you know, that one group may believe and, a, and another group may believe something that's mutually exclusive. But a, a lot of the differences are are differences of emphasis. You know, um, the, the West may, you know, emphasize um, legal terms more where the East may emphasize, you know, the participation in God. But I don't think those two things are necessarily mutually exclusive, just, just on the face. Now, don't get me wrong. I, like I said, there are things that, that could be, but uh, it's actually funny that you mentioned uh, Callista's Ware. That is the one uh, <laughs> book that I've read as the Orthodox way um, that was required reading at, at my Baptist uh, <laughs> seminary, oddly enough, for one class. But So that is the extent of my uh, reading so far in Eastern Orthodoxy. So to piggyback off of that uh, recommendation, do you have others that, that you say, all right, maybe you're a Baptist or you're a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, whatever. You have no knowledge whatsoever of Eastern Orthodoxy. These are the men or women that you need to be reading to learn more about this tradition. Uh, yeah. Well, so Callistos Ware is, is a, an excellent source. Uh, he has two books, and one of them you mentioned, The Orthodox Way, that's sort of, um, you know, a spiritual guide in a sense, or at least talking about orthodoxy as a way of life, um, giving teaching about things like prayer. Uh, the other book is called The Orthodox Church, and it's more historical and theological. That's the one that I read when I was in college. And like I mentioned, it, you know, it's not a polemical book. He's not trying to prove anything, but simply by going through early church history and then how it continued after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, in the, in the East, you had a continuous development. And then he talks about the schism and, and all the rest of it. Anyway, that, that's what convinced me. Like I said, that simply uh, convinced me that orthodoxy is simply the continuation today of the ancient church. Um, anyway, but I would recommend that book for those interested in sort of a, a deeper study. Um, there's another really good author uh, you may have heard of Frederica Matthews Green. She used to be a religion commentator on NPR, and uh, she's the wife of an Orthodox priest, and she's written a number of books, and I, I'm i trying to remember the title of the one I have on my shelf over there. But anyway, um, keep, let me grab it, and I'll show you. Uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Welcome to the Orthodox Church, an introduction to Eastern Christianity. And her books are often a little more approachable for the non-scholar than I think, uh, say, someone like Callistos Ware, um, you know, having been a radio commentator and all. She just has a really nice touch in explaining things in a very accessible way. Um, of course, I'm, you know, I, I teach philosophy, right? So I'm, I'm more interested in some of the theological issues and so forth. So another author I really like is Vladimir Lossky. Um, L-O-S-S-K-Y. He was a uh, Russian theologian uh, who was part of the emigration, you know, or, or maybe second generation emigre, you know, when they left uh, at Russia after the fall of the, uh, of the Tsar, then many of them came to Paris. And so he lived in Paris. Uh, he taught theology there. He wrote a number of books. Uh, one of them is called The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. It's sort of a classic introduction to Orthodox theology. That goes, uh, you know, more into the pure theology and the pure and some of the philosophical issues than than say Ware does in his book. Uh, so those are at least three good authors. You know, there there are many others, but those maybe would be my my top three suggestions. 
That's great. One last thing I want to ask you uh, that's content driven is we talked a little bit about icons and I can imagine just in my head uh, certain segments of our listeners thinking icons, does that mean you're worshiping them? You don't have to get into super big like explanation of all that goes on in that, but how would you describe the use of icons in the Eastern Orthodox Church? Yeah, well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you came back to that. It is important. Um, so one way we use them is that when we pray at home, uh, you know, you have an icon corner and usually there'll be, be an icon of Christ there sort of in the middle. And then there might be other icons of say the Theotokos, uh, or other biblical saints and also other, you know, later saints. And it makes a big difference when you pray. Um, you know, and you also stand to pray. That's typically how we pray. And, uh, you're, you, you know, there's a sort of sense of being answerable, um, that you are speaking to Christ and Christ is there and he's looking at you, right? He's listening and he's looking at you. And, um, it just, it makes a big difference. Um, now the icons themselves are certainly not things that we worship, you know, they're, they're, they're paintings, right? But they, if you look at how they're painted, there's a sort of a distinctive style where they're not trying to uh, be naturalistic. They're not trying to show exactly what someone would have seen if he was at that scene. Um, you know, a good example of that is the icon of the crucifixion. Uh, of course, historically, you know, Christ had on the inscription above him, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Often that's replaced. And instead on an icon, it will say, uh, King of glory. To remind you, uh, that's who he really is. And, and, you know, of course, in reality, he would have been bloody and it would have been a face in excruciating pain. Um, he's always depicted in, in the crucifixion icons as serene and majestic. Um, and the way his arms are stretched out on the cross, you know, the, the fathers say that he was blessing the world when he, when his arms were outstretched. Um, and that's what the icon is, is there to remind us of that, no matter what we see with our eyes, there's always the true reality that's beyond that. And that's true for the way that any saint is depicted. They're not trying to be always historically exactly what that person looked like. They're trying to show you the spiritual reality um, and to sort of enable you to sort of come to understand and to see the world around you in those terms, you know, that there's the sensible world, but then there's there's the spiritual reality that's beyond. Um so that's just some of, you know, and of course in a church, an Orthodox church, the walls will be covered with icons. There's the iconostasis at the front of the church that has icons. And that's all sort of picking up the idea from um, uh, Romans that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And uh, those are the witnesses who are worshiping together with us. Um, and so that's why they're always part of an Orthodox church. I like that explanation. That's good. That's helpful. Um, one thing that I think probably some of our listeners might want to know is, do you have a website Do you or that they can follow along with things that you publish? I know you've got works like, what is it, Aristotle East and West, and I, I'll link to those in the show notes for you, you, those who are listening. You can click the little link there, and it'll take you directly to, to some of those books. But do you have a website or a, like a faculty page that you would direct people to if they want to find all of your resources? Yeah, there's, there's a website called academia.edu. 
uh, that's mm-hmm. mostly for professors and scholars, but um, I have a page there that has several dozen different articles I've written. Uh, most of them, you know, there are scholarly articles, but they get into more detail about things like the divine energies and other aspects of Orthodox theology. Um, and if people are interested, um, I've, I have done interviews that are on YouTube um, on different subjects, including the essence and energies. You know, I'm, I'm, people have interviewed me about that and other things relating to Orthodoxy. So if they search my name there, they could find. Uh, uh, but, awesome. but I wouldn't... <laughs> I wouldn't uh, go to me first. I mean, there are other people, like I mentioned, Frederica Matthews Green and Callistos where you know, who are, who are probably more authoritative. And, and they also, you can find on YouTube, you know, there are a lot of good resources there. Yeah, I do. it seems interesting to me. YouTube does seem to have a, a strong Eastern Orthodox presence mm-hmm. um, that's, that's there, so you can learn a lot from it um, there as well. But Dr. Bradshaw, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this. I imagine all of our listeners feel the same way. And I want to commend your resources. I've read a good amount of it, um, and I've benefited from all of them. So if you're listening and these topics are interesting to you, Eastern Orthodoxy, or even, I mean, a lot of this is Doctrine of God related, and I think a lot of our listeners are interested in those sort of things. So I I commend those to you to find, to read, to to understand, and to to stretch yourself uh, to think more deeply about all these topics. And if you've been listening, you have been listening to the only analytic Baptist and Confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.